I know you're, you've already been welcome, but we want to thank you for being here this morning on this holiday weekend, and we're glad you've, you've joined us for worship. Um, this is Memorial Day weekend, and we often think of it as a time to get out and play, to enjoy the extra time off work, and to just go have fun. But as that video clip reminded us, the, the, the freedoms that we have to do those things did not come free. They, they came at great cost to many. What I'd like to do this morning is just take a, a moment and have a moment of silence where we just remember and reflect and, and take a minute to thank God in your hearts for those who have served our country and, and, and most of all just to remember for a moment those who didn't come back. Let's just bow our heads. Father, here on this Memorial Day weekend, we're grateful for the freedom to attend a church service freely. We're, we don't have to live in fear of people kicking, soldiers kicking down doors and hauling us off to prison. We have freedoms that we don't even think about on a daily basis that um, we just don't even acknowledge because we're so used to them. God, I'm grateful for this nation, for all of its faults and its problems. We, we live in a privileged country. I pray, God, for our rulers and our, our leaders that you would um, guide them to make decisions uh, that would honor you and that are not just born out of selfish motives or, um, or, a, or a wrong focus. God, I thank you for those who are serving around the world today in our armed forces. I ask for their protection. I ask that you'd encourage their families back home, um, lift, lift them up and, and strengthen their spirits as they uh, miss another holiday with a loved one, uh, w- without that loved one. God, as we study your word this morning, I ask that you would bless our services and that you would, you would guide us to the truth. I pray that our hearts would just, just be fertile grounds in which your word can take root and that your Holy Spirit would have his way in our midst today. And it's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Uh, the last few weeks, we have um, taken a step away from the book of James. So we're going to return now as we continue our series, Faith at Work. And we're going to be in James chapter 4 today. Uh, I just want to point out a couple of things that are in your bulletins as you find your place in James. Uh, first of all, as you know, and we've, we've said this before, that many of our campers, many of our, many of our young people here um, get to go to summer camp uh, absolutely free. Once they pay the registration free, there's, there's no cost to attend summer camp. And that is because uh, we have a generous donor who pays half of their way, and then the church picks up the rest of the tab so that our youth can have an opportunity to have a great experience and connect with God in a, in a special way as they go to camp. And so if you would like to have a part in donating to the camp fund, we just want to make sure that you know that that's an opportunity. As you put your, your offering envelopes and the offering boxes in the back, you can designate a portion of that uh, to go to the camp fund, and that will help make sure that, um, that our youth can enjoy that, that special time of connection with God and nature this summer. Um, I also want to make sure that you know that uh, we announced it last week, but on June 7th, we have our, our Bassmasters tournament uh, at the Kleinhart's Pond. It's going to be at 5 o'clock. You don't have to register or get signed up. All you got to do is show up with your three-man team. Uh, bring a boat and... Um, and just have a blast. We're going to eat at five, and so you can bring, Jeff, they're bringing their own meat, is that right? Bring your own meat. We're going to have other stuff provided. Uh, bring your own meat and throw it on the grill, and, and uh, we'll eat first. Make sure you get out in the water with a full belly, and then uh, it'll be, a, it'll just, a, just be a fun time. Um, 
Last year, I, was, I had the distinct honor of getting skunked out there. I didn't catch a single fish. And so I was awarded the pink pole of shame. And, uh, and so I've been informed that this year I have to fish with that pink fishing pole. I'm kind of looking forward to it because it's got this really cool reel that lights up when you spin it really fast. It's pretty cool. So, oh, that's true. If I get lost out there and I'm fishing after dark, maybe. <laughs> So we want to encourage you to come on out and, and enjoy the time. It'll be a lot of laughter and a, a, lot, of, a lot of good-natured ribbing out there. Um, if you have your Bibles and you've found uh, James chapter 4, uh, would you please read along as we read the first 10 verses? James chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it's to no purpose that the Scripture says, he yearns jealously, jealously, jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. The, mes- the title of today's message is When the Gloves Come Off. A boy once asked, Dad, how do wars begin? Well, Take the first war, said his father. That got started when Germany invaded Belgium. Well, immediately his wife interrupted him and said, Tell the boy the truth. It began because someone was murdered. The husband drew himself up with an air of superiority and snapped back, Are you answering the question or am I? Turning her back upon him in a huff, the wife walked out of the room and slammed the door as hard as she could. When the dishes finally stopped rattling in the cupboard, An uneasy silence followed, broken at length by the sun. Daddy, you don't have to tell me how wars begin. I think I just figured it out. (laughs) We can laugh because maybe we've all experienced similar moments in our household. And and unfortunately, though, that these wars sometimes don't just stay within the four walls of our house, or they don't just take place out in a battlefield somewhere, but sometimes they take place within the walls of the church building. And that's what was happening in, in to the, among the people that James was writing to. They were having problems getting along. We've already seen some of their dysfunction and some of their struggles as we've walked through this, this book. And here James now is going to point out some things that were wrong in their midst, some of the things that were causing that strife. And then he wanted to point them toward a solution to, re, to, to redeem and to recover from that behavior. And so if you have your notes, I want to first think about the source of strife, and that is their pride. The big problem among the in their midst was that it was kind of an every man for themselves mentality. 
He says there at the beginning, he says, What causes the quarrels and fights among you? Isn't this that your passions are at war with you? You desire and you don't have, so you murder. You covet and you can't obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. He says, you guys are bickering like some, some little children. This almost is like a scene right out of a, 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 a room full of toddlers. He said, you're all after your own thing. You're bickering and you're fighting. And, and the, the, the big problem that you have in your midst is that you're all in it for yourselves. You're, 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 you're trying to covet. You have something that you want for yourself in your timing. And you all are feeling that way. And so you're bound to be butting heads, to be colliding here. And, and James is saying that's, that's not the way to, to deal with life. That's not how believers are supposed to get along. Now you might have noticed even in verse 2, he brings up the idea of murder. He says, you do not have, so you murder. Now I, I don't think that James is literally talking about homicides being committed in their midst. Now some commentators think that it's possible, that there were actually fights that had escalated to the point of somebody... somebody you know, knifing another guy or something. I don't think, I think James would have spent a little more time dealing with that if they were actually killing one another. I think probably James is alluding to the words of the Lord. If you remember when Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, um, he said, you, ha- you heard it, that it was said of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. And so I think that probably what was happening here is, is that, that they, were, they were exhibiting a hatred and a contempt for others that fell into what Jesus said in Matthew 5 is the same thing as murder. You guys just look at it as mean-spiritedness, but I see it as, as the sin of murder because of the way that you're, you're, you're treating your fellow brothers. Some individuals in some churches are known for their type, the type of behavior that James describes here. When pride run, runs rampant in our lives and go, goes unchecked, you can better believe that there will follow with it a demanding of having things my way. When, I, when my life is given way to pride, I'm going to be bowling over other people to get what I want in my timing right now. In fact, you may remember... That old Burger King slogan, your way right away. Our culture kind of feeds into this mentality. You deserve it. You deserve to have it your way. If this is what you want, you deserve to have it this way. And when we take that mentality into the church or into our marriages, and we begin to look out for number one first and foremost, without consideration of the needs of others, there will be contention. I just I promise you, there will be trouble. The source of this attitude, James says, is pride. It's pride. Tim Keller, in his little book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, defined pride this way. He says, Spiritual pride is the illusion that we are competent to run our own lives, achieve our own sense of self-worth, and to find a purpose big enough to give us meaning of life in life without God. It's the illusion that we're competent to run our own lives, achieve our own sense of self-worth, and to find a purpose big enough to give us meaning in life without God. C.S. Lewis, in talking about just how serious a problem that pride was, he called it the essential vice, the utmost evil. He says, Unchastity and anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites into comparison. 
It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. It is pride that has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and in every family since the world began. Maybe you're thinking, wow, that's, that's stating it a little bit too strongly. But even still, you know, I might have my own issues, but I don't think I have a problem with pride. I don't think I have an issue with that. First of all, we need to make sure that we understand that he's not talking about the way that we sometimes use the word pride in the English language. And that is, like, sometimes you might say, well, I, I take pride in my work. You should take pride in, in your accomplishments. That, that's not the way that the Bible is talking about the sin of pride. That's, that's a different concept. There's okay, it's okay to, 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 be, to, be, to want to put your, your full effort into your work and to be that, that, that feeling, that sense of accomplishment that comes from a, a hard day's work. That's okay. That's, that's different than what James is talking about here. He's talking about this self-centeredness that says, I want things my way. I, I, can, I can handle things on my own. I am sufficient in and of myself. And lest we think that this is not a struggle, here are some, here are some ways in which pride might manifest itself in our life. It might, it might come from a, an idea of self-sufficiency or self-reliance. We may, not, we may not verbally say, I don't need God, I can handle this. But inwardly, we have this air about us, the spirit that says, I've got it. I can do things on my own. Maybe, uh, maybe manifest yourself in, in that you're above instruction. That you, you can never sit down and listen to someone explain or point, point out areas of your life where you don't maybe fully have it all together. You're always quick to rush on. Yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't know. But... To, to actually sit down and read the instruction manual, to sit down and, and hear someone say, you know what, Jeremiah, there's an area of your life that I think, I think you need to, to pay attention to. An area of life where you don't think you have the whole big picture. Pride is above instruction. Pride takes credit for what God is doing through me. That is, when, when I'm able to accomplish something good, when, when God uses me to do something great, rather than turning the glory on God, I don't mind heaping it on myself. I don't mind receiving it because deep down, I, I truly believe that it was because I'm so awesome that this got done. That's, that's pride. Pride keeps me from rarely, if ever, being wrong. When was the last time you said to anyone, I was wrong, please forgive me? If you can't remember the last time those words crossed your lips, you have a problem with pride. If you can't say, yeah, yeah, that was wrong. I should not have done that. I really messed up there. And that's pride. That's pride. Pride causes me to worship the opinions of others. I begin to to think and care more about what other people say rather than what God says. That's pride. If I have a problem with fear of man, if I do things always with my eye looking to see how they'll respond, how other people will take it, looking to get that pat on the back, that's pride. Pride focuses on my needs and my wants. And God wants us to know that there's a problem with that. And I didn't put the slide up there, but that's, that's the problem with pride. That's the problem with pride. But then we also see God's view of pride. He doesn't leave us any question as to how he thinks about people who are proud in their hearts. Verse, the end of verse 6 says, Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, 
God opposes the proud. This word that's translated opposes comes from a Greek word that's tied to, literally tied to military usage on the battlefield. It's, it's one side coming up against another side. It's arraying yourself for battle. That's pretty strong language. It says, if you are a proud person, then God sets himself up against you. I I don't know about you, but that's not a place I want to be in. That's not a a battlefield that I want to go to. When I was a kid and, and played Little League, I wasn't the, I wasn't the greatest player, but I love baseball. I love I, to this day I love baseball. And I uh, there was a kid in our league though, played for Sunfield. And whenever we would play this Sunfield team, his name was Mike. And this kid threw hard, threw really probably the hardest throw in our league. And uh, whenever we played that team, we just hoped that Mike had pitched the day or two before and that he wasn't throwing against us because this guy this guy didn't just throw hard, but he didn't control his pitches. And so if you were a kid who already was a little bit afraid of getting hit and Mike stepped on the mound, your knees were knocking. I still remember my cousin uh, stepped in against him one time and Mike, Mike came in high and hard against him and, and he, he didn't even have time to move. He just kind of went like this and the ball came underneath his front arm and caught him in that soft tissue right there. I thought they were going to have to take the arm off. When they, when they pulled back his jersey, it was just black and blue all throughout here. And I'm like, I didn't want to get in the batter's box after seeing my cousin get nailed by that guy. Nobody wanted to go up against Mike. Nobody. And to an even greater degree, infinitely greater degree, if you're someone who is proud, who digs your heels in, who is going to do things your way, the Bible says that God is kind of on the pitching mound, that God is the one that you're up against. The Bible says that God opposes you. When you align yourself with the world's values, when, when you are the kind of person who is going to do it your way, who is not open to the working of God in your life and being willing to submit to him, the Bible says that you are in opposition to God. The, this, this theme is a reoccurring motif all the way throughout the Bible. Over and over and over again, the Bible teaches that God is against those who are proud. I want to encourage you, though, this morning. If you realize that there are areas of your life in which you struggle with pride, and and we all have them, whether it's dealing with our kids or our spouse, our coworkers here at church, if there's areas in which you struggle with pride, take heart because there's some good news. We don't have to live in a, in a state of being opposed by God because James also gives us the path to peace, and that is humility. You can change. You can have your heart switch over from being a proud heart to that of a humble heart. And James gives us several steps to making that happen. First of all, he tells us in verse 7, He says, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. This is the the first step of taking me off the throne, of, of, of dethroning myself, taking the crown off, realizing who God is and who I am, and submitting to Him. This word is actually closely related 
to the, the, um, the word there that was translated oppose. That word is the Greek word antetasso, and this is the Greek word upotasso. And this means rather than arranging against someone, you're, you're arranging yourself beneath them. That is, it's, it's, and again, it's another military word of someone who is subordinating themselves to their commanding officer, who is willingly and joyfully submitting to and following orders. They've decided to stop pushing against it. They've decided to stop fighting it. And they've decided now to submit to their commanding officer because from a biblical basis and from a, from a God standpoint of view, we know that our commanding officer always knows what's best. Some of you have served in the military before. And you know you're supposed to follow orders, but there's been times when you've questioned those orders. You've been times, there's been times when you wonder if that person in charge really knows what they're doing. And really knows what's best, but you're supposed to follow anyways. Well, the great thing about God is that everything he asks us to do, everything he calls us to do, every order he issues is good. Everything he says is right and it's just and it's the best because it's coming from a holy God who loves you. The first step towards getting onto the path to peace is submitting to God. Secondly, We need to be resisting the devil. We need to be resisting the devil. Verse 7 says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Now we need to be careful if, if, depending on who you you, you read and what what, uh, preachers you listen to, uh, you really could fall into a couple of different ditches here. And we need to make sure that we be careful to have balance on this teaching. Uh, One error is is that we we place too much emphasis on the devil's power and his ability to work in our lives and to do things to tempt us. Uh, there were some books written many, many years ago, some fiction books that, that kind of tried to bring to life the world of demons and Satan. And uh, sometimes people walked away from reading those books seeing a demon in everything, every bad behavior, every sinful thought. It was all demon, demon, demon. And we need to be careful about going that route. If you've ever read Romans chapter 6 and 7, in that, in that section, the Apostle Paul talks about sin and the, the source of sin in our life, the indwelling desires that lie in there. And when he gets to chapter 7, he's speaking as a Christian who is struggling, and he says, listen, the good things that I really want to do, I don't do them. And the things I don't want to do, those are the things I do. It's, it's driving me crazy. And if you've read that passage, you know that he's just struggling and battling with this desire that lies within him to do what is right, but this conflicting desire that seems to draw him towards what is wrong. And if you read that passage, you'll notice something. Not once throughout there does he blame his struggles on Satan or on demons. He says, the problem is me. The problem is me. In fact, Jesus underscored that teaching in Mark chapter 7. He says, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. From within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these evil things come from within and they defile a person. The spirit world is real and our enemy is a real enemy, but we also need to make sure that we don't uh, uh, blame him for the blame that needs to lay on our shoulders. We don't need to blame him for the things that are on us. And Jesus says that within us are plenty of sinful things. But the other ditch that you could fall into is to not acknowledge Satan's working at all. 
to not acknowledge that we have an enemy. The Apostle Paul said in Ephesians that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against principalities and power, that spiritual warfare is a real thing. 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9 tells us to be sober-minded, to be watchful. He says, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood around the world. Christians, I want you to be reminded today that God has given you power to resist Satan. There is nothing that will come your way that is too overpowering where you throw up your hands and say, I can't do this. How am I supposed to fight this battle? I feel alone here. God has given you all the resources at your disposal to resist the devil. And in the verse, the promise is that he will flee from you. Great place to go. And if we had time, we would dive into Ephesians chapter 6. Study the armor of God. One by one, look at each of the armor the weapons, the resources that God has given you to combat Satan, to combat the principalities and powers. The resources are there. Know that when you walk out of here today, maybe the battle's already started, but if, when you walk out of here today, you're not walking into a, 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 a neutral zone. It's not a ceasefire territory. You're walking into a battle in which Satan would love to see you fail would love to see you blow it. And so you need to fight. You need to stand. You need to resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Thirdly, to get on the path to peace, the path to peace, there needs to be repenting of sin. We need to have hearts that are repentant. Hearts that acknowledge our sinfulness. As I said before, if if there is never any kind of an acknowledgement of wrongdoing in your life, that's that's a huge pride issue. Jesus has told us, and, and, and all throughout Scripture, we're told that repentance leads to life. Sometimes we're afraid to come clean. Sometimes we're afraid that if we acknowledge it, people will see our weaknesses. They'll see the chinks in our armor. The problem is, is that they already, they already see them. <laughs> and acknowledging them is the first step to being holy and right with God. James, as he has been the whole book, uh, does not pull punches here in, in his challenging believers to repent of sin. Look at verse 8. He says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. James is not calling for a morose Christianity here, but he's calling people who have hard hearts to turn, to repent, You guys are are walking around laughing and and playing it off like there's nothing wrong. And he said, there are huge issues. You need need to, rather than uh, be walking around and laughing, you need to be on your knees repenting. You need to be before God crying out for his, His forgiveness, confessing your sin to Him. He calls them out for their spiritual adultery and in their coziness with sin in the world. That idea of adultery, again, he's not talking about actual sexual immorality that was taking place, but he's hearkening back to the the language of the prophets from the Old Testament 
when they would constantly call the nation of Israel out on, he said, uh, you, guys, you guys claim to be followers of Yahweh, the one true God, yet you set up all kinds of I, um, uh, places to worship idols, and you're following after all these other gods of, of the other nations. He said, you're, you're spiritual adulteresses. You can't stay faithful to your God. And he's using, James is using that same language to refer to the believers here who on one hand are trying to be cozy with the world and on the other hand attend worship on, on Sundays and not see a problem. He says, you guys are double-minded. You need to repent. Your heart needs to break over your sin. They need to take the advice of the prophet Joel in Joel 2.12. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. James gives us harsh words, strong words. But he also brings us comforting words. You see, God is in the business of not kicking us when we're down. You remember, you remember as Jesus ministered and served, we, we've said this before, but it's important to notice how he dealt with different people differently. He didn't have a cookie-cutter approach to ministry. There were those who were brokenhearted, who were downcast because they saw their sinfulness. They knew that they were separated from God. They were at the, at the bottom of life's barrel. They were, they were down. Jesus didn't come to them with harsh, strong words. He came to them with gentleness. He came to them with tenderness and, and, and words like, Your sins are forgiven. Now go and sin no more. Jesus put an arm of love around those people. But then there were those who needed the harsh words. There were those, oftentimes it was the religious leaders, the Pharisees, what we would call maybe church people, people who, who were honored and revered by those around them as being the holy ones, the ones who had their lives together, the ones who were close to God. You know what? The, the kinds of things that Jesus said to them, he called them broods of vipers. Empty tombs full of dead man's bones. He called them hypocrites. And you know what the chief source of their problem was? It's the same thing that James is speaking to here. It's pride. It was pride. It was the spiritual better than thouness. And to those of us who are in that same boat this morning, we need to hear the harsh words of James. We need to be shaken a little bit. We need to be turned upside down. And we need to hear, be wretched and mourn and weep. And we need to find ourselves on our knees going before God, confessing that spiritual pride. Jesus, Jesus didn't just come to die for the, the, the adulterers and the murderers and the thieves. He came to die for the spiritually proud as well. And many of us are in need of repenting of that this morning. But God doesn't just leave us with guilt and condemnation. I love that about our God. He doesn't just want us to walk away feeling beat up and broken down at the sin that he has revealed in our lives. Because what he also wants us to do is he wants us to receive his grace. He wants us to receive his grace. Look at this wonderful verse, verse 6. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He gives more grace. 
And maybe some of you are feeling this overwhelming sense of your pride and your spiritual blindness. And you need to hear this verse. He gives more grace to the humble, to those who come before him broken. There is a storehouse of grace waiting. Alec Moyer says that God's resources are never at an end. His patience is never exhausted. His initiative never stops. His generosity knows no limit. He gives more grace. John Blanchard has said that for the daily need, there is daily grace. For sudden need, there is sudden grace. And for overwhelming need, there is overwhelming grace. Not one of you will ever, ever exhaust the bountiful grace of God. An artist once submitted a painting of Niagara Falls for an exhibition, but neglected to give it a title. The gallery was faced with the need to supply one, and someone came up with these words, More to follow. Old Niagara Falls, spilling over billions of gallons a year for thousands of years, has more than met the needs of those below, and it is a fit emblem of the flood of God's grace. There is always more to follow. Some of you may remember the words of John 1.16, where he says, Of his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Some translations say, Grace instead of grace or grace following grace, or grace heaped upon grace. We have received that fullness through Jesus Christ. And that grace is available for the taking. Verse 10 says, To humble yourselves before the Lord. To humble yourselves before the Lord. One writer says that means to recognize your own spiritual poverty, to acknowledge, consequently, your desperate need of God's help and to submit of his commanding, to his commanding will for your lives. And then notice the promise that follows. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. It might seem counterintuitive to us. Humility seems like, I don't know, kind of below us maybe. If I want to get anywhere in this world, I've got to get there myself. But God has a different way of doing things. His way, His way, is that when we choose to humble ourselves, that's the way up. Then He will exalt you. The way up is the way down. By humbling ourselves before Him, we cast upon Him and avail ourselves to the resources of His grace And only in that moment can we expect to be exalted. An almost forgotten hymn by Annie J. Flint speaks to this so very well. She wrote, He giveth more grace as our burdens grow greater. He sendeth more strength as our labors increase. To added afflictions he addeth his mercy. To multiplied trials he multiplies peace. When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed ere the day is half done, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving is only begun. Fear not that thy need shall exceed his provision. Our God ever yearns his resources to share. Lean hard on the arm everlasting availing. The Father both thee and thy load 
will upbear. His love has no limits. His grace has no measure. His power no boundary known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. That is our God. A good and generous God. Some of you remember the famous hymn writer John Newton who wrote that that hymn that we all know, Amazing Grace. I'm sure you've heard that he was, before God saved him, a slave ship captain and cruelly treated slaves for a number of years as he hauled them back and forth between Africa and England. God mightily saved him. And Newton never got over God's amazing grace that he would save such a wretch like Newton. When Newton was in the final weeks of his life, he was visited by a longtime friend and fellow pastor, William Jay. As Jay spoke to him, Newton lay in his bed unresponsive. The once brilliant mind of the great writer and preacher had grown dim. When Jay was preparing to leave, he heard Newton trying to speak, and he leaned in to hear what the dying Newton wanted to say. And this is what he heard. My memory is nearly gone. But I remember two things, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. This morning, maybe as you hear James's words, and maybe it's not just this chapter, maybe it's been something else in the book. We talked about speech or putting our, our actions to our words. Maybe it's about the way you treat the poor, whatever it is. Maybe you felt that overwhelming sense of your sinfulness. And like Newton, you realize that you are a great sinner, but I want you to hear this morning that you have a greater Savior and His grace is there in full supply to meet the demand that your sin requires. Let's pray. Our God, today we are reminded that pride is such a a devastating, a devastating sin. And I don't think that we realize the, the far reaches that, that pride can have in our life. And it's not a sin that just affects me, but it begins to affect those around me. And God, before we know it, we can be at odds with people in our home, brothers and sisters at church. And God, that's not the way that Christians should act. God, would help us to first recognize this pride. And may we be humble enough to repent of it. And then let us cast ourselves upon your grace. For we're reminded this morning that that you give more grace. And more grace. And more grace. God, I'm so thankful for Jesus Christ that opened up the floodgates of your goodness to us. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. God bless. Have a great weekend.